Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. We've had episodes of This Pathological Life of all durations, and I'm told some of the longer ones, people need to be pepped up along the way to see them through to the end, Travis. Does is, is that bring us into line with what we're talking about today? We're talking about uppers and downers in this one, so you never know, depending on what, uh, what mood you're in. Uh, yeah, we're talking about drugs of addiction uh, today. So this is, uh, you know, a number of different drugs, opioids, amphetamines. Uh, again, uppers and downers. I, it, it's quite interesting when you see all the street drugs uh, or the street names for these. Um, I can never keep up with them all. But uh, the, the first one I want to talk about is, is opioid. This takes me back actually to my medical, medical student days. Uh, I did a rotation at the drug and alcohol department there. And you get to do clinics with patients who uh, come in to be seen. They're either in you know, rehab or they're in treatment service or... Uh, and I came across two patients that stuck in my mind. And the, the first was a, a middle-aged man. He was actually a public servant. So he was dressed in a shirt and tie. Um, he was addicted to heroin. And uh, it was just sort of, you know, right at that point in time, my uh, stereotype was like, oh, you know, confronted. And you mm. sit there and just go, oh, you know, you feel bad for doing that. Uh, but he was... Uh, he used and he'd been using for 15, 20 years. He was trying uh, to get off it. But again, that addiction complex is such a hard thing to go through. Mm. But he was a person who was uh, eloquent, uh, able to chat to me. I even asked him, because uh, I couldn't quite work it out, because when people have opioids, you know, if you have it, you can, you know, need it for something for your knee or something. Sometimes you can feel sick. And so I asked him, well, what did it feel like? And he said, I felt sick and I couldn't work out, but he said, eventually you sort of get tolerant to that, but then you en- he enjoyed the high. Uh, and there was another patient uh, who was in her early thirties um, and she was adopted to, to her family when she was very young. So I can't remember her biological mother, but when she turned 16, she said it was like a switch and she went out and wanted drugs. Hmm. There was nothing anyone could do to stop her. She was going to get drugs. And the doctor that I was working with, the, uh, the consultant at the time, said, well, it's probably likely that your biological mother was a user when you were pregnant. And that's when it started to click for me that you sit there and go, oh, this isn't just a, uh, you know, I want to have a high. There's a genetic or an inherited quality to drugs and drug addiction that is far more complex than than what you initially look at until you actually go into that area. I remember seeing patients on the methadone program. Uh, so this is an oral part where they they come in, they have an appointment, uh, they are scheduled to get their methadone, which they take orally, and then they have to check their mouth. But they do a drug test beforehand to make sure they don't have other drugs on board. And if they do, they don't get their methadone. Uh, so I remember seeing one patient who had drugs beforehand and then just you know went very upset when wasn't going to get the methadone Um, but even just talking to patients they call methadone uh, medicated handcuffs because they are prescribed and have to go and get it 
every time they're scheduled to get it. If they want to go on holidays, they have to organize their methadone at a different city to mm. go and get it because, again, they'll start to go withdrawals without it. So it was such an unusual situation to, to step in. And I just want to point out there is always the risk of hypocrisy in these sorts of topics because when I go on holiday, I look for different bottle shops to get my wine or my whiskey, etc. And it's, it's a di different classification of drug, but there are some commonalities between the rationale and the usage. That's right. And, and look, uh, people will have affinity for different drugs. Yeah. Uh, and some, unfortunately, go into the illicit and some people go into the you know socially acceptable. Uh, but we all look for them. The history of opium is is fascinating because this is the derivative of where we get all our, you know, narcotics and morphine. You know, we look back in history, we have 3,400 BCE, where we find in Lower Mesopotamia, the opium poppy. Now, they called it the joy plant. From there, you see it spread out through to the Assyrians, Babylonians, the Egyptians. By 1300 BCE, the Egyptians have their famous poppy fields, and they start exporting it through trade routes to the Phoenicians, Minoans, Greece, Carthage, and Europe. You actually don't see much of it because it's clearly so pervasive until the 15s to the 1700s, where you're starting to get this recreational use of people smoking opium to get their high. Uh, Portuguese, Persia, India all enjoy smoking it. China's interesting, though, because it finds that smoking opium uh, to be barbaric and subversive. So they actually have an attitude towards it that this is not good uh, for, for the population. And then you get the British in the 1700s who start trading in it a lot <laughs> and become, by the mid-1700s, uh, they are exporting 2,000 chests of opium to China. And then in 1775, you start to see opium going to the US. And just at the end, 1799, China bans it. And this is the impetus for the first opium war between the British and China. Chinese government ends up destroying 1,400 tons of opium from the British. British then break a blockade in uh, Hong Kong, and eventually it leads them to a treaty where the British enforces their ability to be able to trade more in China, and the Chinese even cede Hong Kong to them as that, that part of that agreement. So it, there's more wars, as I say, that's the first war, but opium is a valuable commodity, but it has a price. Mm. And in the US in the 1860s, you're starting to see opium being used in the Civil War to treat soldiers who are injured. But by that stage, 400,000 soldiers become addicted to opium by the pain treatment. In the late 1800s, Bayer uh, ends up producing it and has over-the-counter heroin uh, that is for pain relief and coughs. But again, it drives addiction through the roof. Uh, 1900s, we have morphine starts to be synthesized as a pain relief. And then in 1910, we start to find that these oral tablets are starting to be crushed and taken for uh, and inhaled for recreational use. So this is strongly given as a pain relief, but quickly leads to addiction because it's such an effective drug. There, there must be some psychological lack or social lack that sends us looking for this a bit beside any other physiology or, or psychology the, the thing that gets me though is it's such a, an effective drug but some people can take it 
and then be fine and not need it. Mm. Some people can take it and then they really get addicted. So what is it that people can take it and then stop? <laughs> Again, we don't know, but I find that part fascinating. So that some people get addicted, but some people, even though it works and works well, fine. It's why I drink expensive wine. I can't afford a second bottle. <laughs> well, it's, a, it's a good way to go about it. Uh, but what we find in, in 1914 is uh, in the US, uh, there's a, an act called the Harrison's Narcotic Act. And this is when it started to clamp down a little bit. So particularly for uh, cocaine and opium, they recognized these were addictive and they were dangerous drugs. And so what happened is they began to recognize that these were dangerous and addictive drugs. Uh, and they needed to be regulated. So they moved away from over-the-counter. But it looks at now, then, how big is this problem today? Um, And the thing is, we find for for opium or for for narcotics, there's over 500,000 deaths worldwide related to drugs, and about 70% of these, so 350,000 deaths are associated with opioid either intentional or unintentional overuse. So in Australia, we have about uh, 1,700 deaths, uh, and two-thirds of these are opioids, and 80% of these are accidental. These are overdoses that have gone too far. Uh, And the, the interesting thing about this is we find medical prescriptions for opioids has increased dramatically in the 1990s uh, and going up. So there were, there's what we've found uh, in, in between the period of 1999 and 2011, uh, hydrocodone has increased by uh, uh, twofold uh, as, as to it's been prescribed. Oxycodone increased fivefold. Mm. Mortality rate... Uh, associated with these have been increased fourfold and the 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 age group that gets involved uh, unfortunately affected the most are men under the age of 40 and particularly between the ages of 18 and 34 are the most affected uh, and appear to be the most likely to overdose and die so that brings us to addiction uh, i'm not going to go into this in much uh, one time i'm sure we will on a different podcast but a This is a difficult issue to manage for patients and for doctors and for the health system. So when we look at how inherited uh, drug addiction can be, we look at things like uh, hallucinogens has uh, an addiction value between 0 and 1 of around 0.39, which means 0 has none, 1 complete. If we get up to cocaine and opioids, we're around 0.7. Hmm. which means that that is a significant inheritability factor of these addiction to drugs. And we know things like nicotine, alcohol, cannabis are uh, affected in early adolescence. And this has more a contributing factor of familial and social factors. And that tends to reduce over the age as they get old. Opioids are hard to manage. We're doing probably not a great job at the moment of managing our prescriptions and from there we we need to do better let's come back in a moment and if you don't mind i'm curious to dive into amphetamines not consume them just dive into the topic Morel, a 
occasionally prescribed amphetamines for Hitler when he thought he was being too lethargic or not energetic enough. Hitler wasn't the only one blitzed during the Blitzkrieg. Pervitin was a methamphetamine delivering an explosive high. It was given to the German troops who invaded France through the narrow valleys of the Ardennes, driving their tanks through in long lines over three or four days to keep the tank drivers awake. They called it Panzer Schokolade or tank chocolate. It was also known as Stuka tablets uh, from the dive bombers it was given to the pilots. Travis, I mentioned amphetamines just before the break. What are we talking about? And what uh, Unveil the mystery a little bit for us. So we'll look at the other drugs of addiction, just uh, glance across them, just to get familiar with what they're. So uh, look, a lot of these drugs were either designed or created out of good intentions, but ultimately because they are so effective and some for some people so addictive, ends up going down into the abuse category. And, and amphetamines is a really good example of that. Now, it was synthesized in uh, 1927 uh, by a, a person named G.A. Owls. And he was trying to find a less costly and more easily synthesized drug to ephedrine, so in the drug category of, of adrenaline. Uh, and, you know, what they ended up finding was amphetamines. And this found, he found it had the ability to reverse anesthesia, um, increased arousal, uh, and, you know, was able to stop uh, insomnia. Uh, it ended up being patented by Smith Klein French, a pharmaceutical company, and they called it Benzedrine. So this was ended up being useful for, to treat narcolepsy, so which is still used today. Uh, but it was also advertised to treat mild depression. And we have, uh, you know, it was over the counter in the market in 1935. But they started to go in 1939 that it needed to be a prescribed drug because all the people needed to sign the poison register. So what they found with amphetamines and looking at it was it improved intelligence testing it reduced stress uh, increased con concentration in academic students and medical professionals and there, there's an advertisement for benzodrine sulfate tablets uh, and and i'm not sure if i'm saying it right and a hit how do you say it and anhedonic Anhedonic, there we go, um, is the inability to feel pleasure in normal pleasurable activities. So this is what they're referring to. But it was marketed as an antidepressant in the 1930s and 1940s. If the individual is depressed or anhedonic, you can change his attitude by physical means just as surely as you change his digestion by distressing thought. In other words, drugs and physical therapeutics are just as much psychic agents as good advice and analysis and must be used together with these latter agents of cure. By 1946, we're seeing them being used as energy pills. And in World War II, British and American service personnel are starting to use them extensively. It's estimated 150 million benzodrine pills were supplied to the army for the personnel to use. Uh, by the 1950s, competition is starting to increase in these drugs among pharmaceutical manufacturers. And there is another ad. Smooth, fast-acting rifetamine aids in restoring mental alertness, cheerfulness and optimism in mild psychogenic depressive states and in the management of obesity. Clearly they're working. Uh, they're pepping people up. Uh, weight loss starts to be used a lot more uh, as an advertisement. And we're going into the 1960s, 
And amphetamines is still considered pretty innocuous, a, a, a useful drug that you, know, you take, but it's otherwise fine. People, it was believed that helped people in their day-to-day activities. It was given for youthful vigor, um, weight loss. Even President John F. Kennedy had it in his vitamin mix with injections with methamphetamines. So by the end of the 1960s and 1970s, 5 to 6% of the American population over the age of 14 had used amphetamines in the past six months, which is a, a lot of people. That does explain a lot of things. <laughs> but that's, that's a phenomenal amount of the population having had amphetamines. But it's in the 1970s when uh, what it was at the time was called the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, the BNDD, which we'd now know as the Drug Enforcement Agency, started to regulate it because it became apparent that 80 to 90% of the amphetamines on the street were manufactured directly from the, the US pharmaceuticals. So they started to know that this is a problem, but that was in 1970s. That was a deal while after it had been produced and, and advertised. The next one takes us to benzodiazepines. Now, before this, we have barbiturates, which are synthetic tranquilizers. So people help people relax or sleep, uh, you know. But the, the problem with this is it had major problems with tolerance, dependence, overdose, and then withdrawals. Uh, but, I mean, barbiturates became very, very... Uh, popular during the 1930s during the Great Depression and and what they find is there's advertisements by the pharmaceuticals to the public. Now she can cope thanks to butasol sodium butabatable daytime sedative for everyday situation stress. When stress is situational environmental pressures worry over illness the treatment often calls for an anxiety allaying agent which has a prompt and predictable calming action and is remarkably well tolerated. After 30 years of clinical use, still a first choice among many physicians for dependability and economy in mild to moderate anxiety. By World War II, 1941, Americans are using over 1 billion barbiturates per year. It's advertised as safe. So what we're finding is we've got amphetamines, which are uppers, also used, and then we've got barbiturates which are downers so you've got the both working to to help people go up when they need to be up and down when they need to be down however in 1951 congress passed some laws requiring doctors needed to prescribe barbiturates and so pharmaceuticals were searching for alternatives because some of the problems were, were becoming apparent and in 1955 we have the swiss chemists start to synthesized the first benzodiazepine. It was called Librum. It ended up hitting the market in 1960. More accessible and communicative. That is the way Librium-treated patients are often described in the growing literature today. With Librium, you can reduce anxiety, agitation and tension in patients with mild, moderate or even severe emotional disorders and thereby make them more amenable to your therapeutic regimen. In 1958... Clearly, the synthetic machinery is going to find other benzodiazepines. And this one is diazepam, which we now know as Valium. Valium diazepam for reliable relief of psychic tension and associated somatic and depressive symptoms, including tension-induced insomnia, usually well-tolerated. So we now have the cycle of reassurance that the drug is fine, 
but clearly as the drug keeps on being used and being more uh, accepted, but also people interested in taking it, you start to get the issues of dependence and withdrawal occurring. And this happens with benzodiazepines. In 1970s, other drugs are being synthesized like clonazepam and alprazolam. They're in the same class of drugs and it appears that the dosage is reducing, but the potency of these drugs is increasing. In 1979, the US Senate uh, has a hearing on benzodiazepines. Now, no conclusion came from that, uh, but other countries started to regulate them because they realized there are problems. The problem is, by 2008, more than one in 20 Americans were filling at least one benzodiazepine prescription in the US. That brings us to cocaine. So cocaine is actually one of the oldest known. It's from the cocoa plant uh, from South Africa. Indigenous people would chew the leaf and it would give them uh, an exhilaration and more energy. Uh, It was in the Inca culture and religious ceremonies. Uh, It could also be used for pain relief, uh, increased stamina, altitude sickness. Uh, It would improve their concentration and sometimes they would just use it for recreationally. Uh, It wasn't until 1859 when the German chemist Albert Niemann uh, refined and extracted it and called it cocaine, that it was this white powdery substance. And what he noticed was when he put it on his tongue, it made it numb. And so there was even a French chemist, uh, Angelo Mariani, who mixed it with Bordeaux wine and called it tonic. Uh, And (laughs) it was aimed at restoring health and vitality. So the... It was until two decades later that Carl Koller uh, experimented with it as an anaesthetic. He was an ophthalmologist using it on eye surgery. Unfortunately, at the time, eye surgery was very painful. You couldn't use the normal ones, which was ether and chloroform, because patients would vomit, and you can't have a patient moving and vomiting while you're operating. And so they put cocaine solution in, and it turned out that it numbed it really well. The problem with that is there were overdoses and a whole bunch of patients died as a result of the cocaine solution. And so that took the edge off it. Uh, and then we even have Sigmund Freud, who uh, experimented with cocaine in his early career and wrote even a, an article called Uber Cocoa, uh, which is a song of praise to the magical substance. But he had 12 years struggling to try and get off cocaine because uh, of the addiction with it. We have in 1886... Uh, Coca-Cola mixed it with sugary syrup uh, and sold it at, unfortunately, segregated, uh, racially segregated soda fountains so the white middle classes uh, could enjoy it. In, in 1899, they ended up putting it in bottles and were able to sell it. And then the lower classes and minorities got access to it. Uh, cocaine was ended up being removed from Coca-Cola in, in 1903. But again... This is when the Harrison Narcotic Act came in in 1914 and started to regulate it. Mm. The last one is cannabinoids. I'm not going to mention much about this because it's, it's pretty well known. Uh, but in, historically, it was used mainly as a herbal medicine. Um, and it wasn't until the 20th century where the U- U.S. criminalized it and then other countries followed board. Um, but that's now changing now and becoming a, a regulated drug in some countries. All right. We have Dr. Davika Thomas joining us in just a moment. And I think to prepare, I'm going to have a Bex and a lay down first. Hey, what do you got? Hey, give me some. What? Give me a drink, man. For this? Yeah. Oh, go ahead, man. Help yourself. 
Hey, man, that's pee. <laughs> no kidding. What are you doing with pee? That's for my probation officer, man. What, does he drink pee? Nah, man, last week I was supposed to bring some in, you know? Yeah? And I forgot to wash out the jar first, you know? I'm really gonna put his mind this time, man. Well, what'd you do? I have my sister pee in it. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, she's pregnant, man. <laughs> As mentioned earlier, Dr. Davika Thomas, chemical pathologist, has joined us now. Welcome to This Pathological Life again. Thank you. Thank you. Before we get into this, I just need to ask you a question that's related to this topic. And it's also related to a little secret indulgence of mine that takes place late at night, every night. Uh, I have been taken in by the series of books about John Resnick. He's a former Delta operative and he fights the bad guys and saves the world all the time. But his secret is to pop a few things called dexedrine, he calls them. Yes. He just pops dexedrine and then boom, he's got full energy and off he goes. This cannot be a sustainable way of living, can it? Are you familiar with that and, and what's it doing to his system? Um, so de- I, uh, I'm i not familiar with dextrin itself because it's an uh, American um, yeah. trade drug. Um, it may be uh, a derivative of dexamphetamine. Okay. Um, and dexamphetamine um, is a um, what we call the street drug, the amphetamine. It's a dextrorotated, so it's an isomer of that drug. So uh, liver rotation is an, um, the, the street drug. The dextrorotated version of it, the isomer, is used therapeutically for ADHD and certain other um, conditions. So dexamphetamine, um, the other version, um, is therapeutic. So that may be what it is, dextrin. Um, do you know what No, no, I'm not sure. I'm just wondering yes. if Steve popped one now before every yes. podcast. Or so, like, you know, so, yeah, so to... I'm assuming that it is something like that. But yeah. dexamphetamine um, has been used for ADHD. Okay, but he's talking about those special operations officers using them to power through when they've got to stay up yes. 36, so 48 hours. So it's got that amphetamine, um, the that, hyperactivity okay. um, so, um Version or it may have those effects on it, so okay. you just but, stay alert. But we're not condoning that for me to no. use. Okay, no. very good. Well, well caffeine's quite enough. <laughs> oh, thank you. Looking at my cup. Uh, actually, just before we then move into the rest of this, let's just set the scene. Um, what sort of drugs do we actually screen, screen for? for. Mm. Yeah. So with drugs of abuse, um, we screen for five classes. So these are broad categories, broad classes. So opioids is one class, and um, morphine, um, codeine, and um, those substances. Amphetamines is a very broad class, so amphetamines um, appear in various versions. Um, And then cannabinoids is just uh, cannabis, tetrahydrocannabinoids. Uh, Cocaine is a class by itself that we measure. Um, And then benzodiazepines that may be prescribed or may be obtained uh, in other ways. Okay. Uh, so can I ask what samples we typically get from doctors or what can, can doctors send in? Send in. Yeah, so um, the standardised um, an- analysis and interpretation for the result are available for only urine um, and for uh, saliva or oral fluids. So these are um, uh, tried and tested methods and we know uh, we can confirm if there's any positive drugs in these uh, subs- in these fluids, oral fluid and urine. Um, there are also commercially available assays for hair, um, even sweat. 
Uh, but these haven't been uh, widely accepted or standardized because they are all individual little assays and there may be huge variation and very um, high po- probability of contamination, uh, particularly with hair and sweat. Um, blood samples we get asked about quite a lot. Uh, there is no standardized method for assaying drugs of abuse in blood. The um, half-life of uh, a a drug in blood may be a lot smaller or uh, narrower than in the urine. So because these drugs are metabolized and once it's metabolized, they are uh, water-soluble and they get excreted in the urine. So we we may be able to detect them for longer in the urine. Uh, However, the uh, blood tests are not available. Right, okay. Can you take us through the testing procedure? So uh, someone requests it. Uh, where do they go? What do they do? But yes. then, what do we do once once, once we receive we it? Receive it. So with the um, so oral fluids are now um, widely used for traffic control, speed speeding, and other um, traffic offences. So they are not something that we receive normally for medical purposes. Um, oral fluids are also used now as employment uh, work site testing. Urine can be used for worksite testing and for medical legal purposes as well as medical purposes. So once we get a sample um, with generally urine, um, they uh, two categories. One is just purely medical samples. The other one is legal, and we can discuss that uh, further. So that once a medical sample or legal sample, once they're received, we would um, have to do two things. One is to... Um, verified that it is in fact human urine that we've got oh, it could be animal urine we don't know but it, it that it in fact is urine and not another fluid substance or water so um, we measure creatinine in it to make sure that it is urine and then we uh, note the concentration of creatinine just to make sure that it's not diluted um, hugely diluted to reduce the amount that's available in there to assay and then the first step is to do a screening assay so we screen them using an immunoassay in an automated method and that um, assay would look at these um, um, the five broad categories the classes of drugs so they will give us a positive uh, for each of these categories if the amount available is above a certain set threshold or concentration for these categories so once they are uh, screened positive that may be sufficient for medical samples so if someone's in ICU unconscious you want to know what sort of broad class they might have used so we can give them the antidote then that would be enough Um, However, in certain uh, situations, they may want to know exactly what they've taken and how much. So then the next step is a confirmatory test, which is using mass spectrometry. And that is um, recognizing a particular, uh, if I may call it a fingerprint of that particular drug and each drug in that broad class. And then it will tell us exactly what the structure is and how much of it is there available so then we could identify what they've exactly taken i'm curious now and i promise not on behalf of john resnick um after a patient's taken a drug if we look at those broad classes yes how long after taking is it still present in the system still traceable yes so uh the uh if someone takes codeine for example huge amounts of codeine in the cold um, and flu tablet you can detect it in the urine for up to two days um, as codeine itself. But some of the codeine gets converted to morphine in your body. And that morphine or morphine that's they've, that they've injected up to about four days in the urine. 
uh, heroin, which we measure as six meta, um, monoamine um, uh, monoacetal morphine. Heroin is converted to six monoacetal morphine in the body. So we can we measured that one. So that's up to three days. And hydromorphone is a is a, a, more, a version of morphine that can be injected. So if someone gets an injection of morphine for pain or whatever, that's up to about two days. And then other classes like amphetamines up to four days in the urine. Mm-hmm. Um, cannabis depends on how often and um, the uh, freq- uh, frequency and the length of use. So some uh, someone who uses it just once in a life, just one time, up to two days. And if someone uses it three times a week, it, you can detect it up to two weeks in the urine. Someone who uses daily for um, two, three weeks, you can detect it up to four weeks after. And heavy and chronic users that just use it every day for months, you detect it up to 12 weeks when they've, when they've stopped using it. So because it's um, stored in, in body fat and then it's slowly released. Uh, cocaine is a very short half-life. So cocaine as cocaine only about five hours after mm. use but we can measure its metabolites up to about four days after so most of the tests are you uh, looking for the metabolites rather than the actual drug um, benzodiazepines again in uh, depends on the dose they are given so the normally prescribed doses for um anxiety or insomnia or whatever up to about five days but if they are taking very high doses apart, um, on top of these prescribed levels up to about six weeks get called a fair bit false negatives false positives, false positives. Uh, yes. what's the what's the rule of thumb that we can yes sort of... so false negatives are not reported because we don't know but if the assay is negative we don't go and do the confirmation so we don't get any um uh, evidence of false negatives or any com- any any information about them. Um, so this all depends on what the standard um, assays are looking for, and have they taken exactly what we're looking for, or have they taken something slightly different? So, for example, amphetamines. We're looking for amphetamine, methamphetamine, MDMA, which is ecstasy, and MDA. Um, and um, however, uh, some people get uh, prescribed fentanyl. Um, or um, pseudoephedrine, ephedrine, they may give a low positive signal. So sometimes it's below our cutoff for that screening assay, so we don't go ahead and look at them. But if they've taken enough of these fentamine, pseudoephedrine, ephedrine, we may get a um, high positive result and it may go into confirmation and it'll say, oh, it's not um, MDMA or amphetamine. And then we'll have to do another test to see if it is ephedrine or pseudoephedrine. Um, for example, the benzodiazepine screen, all the um, widely prescribed uh, di- uh, benzos like diazepam, temazepam, oxazepam, clonazepam, they'll all be picked up in our assay. And then we can say, yeah, it's benzopositive. Confirmation will tell exactly what it is, whether it's temazepam or diazepam. However, in the body, diazepam's converted to temazepam. And then temazepam's then converted to oxazepam. So if they were prescribed oxazepam, we will just see oxazepam. If they've given diazepam, we'll see all different metabolites. Um, we can get a, a false positive um, in um, in the, in some of these um, benzo benzos with uh, things like lorazepam, clobazepam. They are uh, structurally similar, but they're not in our standard assay. Sertraline, which is an antidepressant, and ibuprofen have been known to give false positives um, with the benzo, some of the benzo assays. Mm. Um, now, cannabis false positives are extremely rare. 
uncommon and exceptional is what they call it if you see uh, if they say it's a false positive because it's a uh, such specific structure there's nothing like it however there's been a report of um atovastatin which is a statin um apparently having given a false positive for a cannabis um screen mm. immunoassay and uh, false positives for uh, opioids um the morphine class of drugs is common because uh, oxycodone can some in some assays give a false positive um if they're given naltrexone naloxone uh, or tramadol sometimes even verapamil however the most common opioid false positive is poppy seeds oh. so they say they can be a seasonal false positive so um i i'm not sure why maybe there are certain seasons where people have a lot more food that has poppy seeds in them um so that's been tested and and one of our um toxicologist in Queensland he actually bought poppy seed bread from a certain bakery and ate it over several days and collected urine and tested and it became positive uh, for opioid screen so they actually did the study in themselves um amines sympathetic amines which is the amphetamine group you can get positives with buprenorphine which is um a prescribed drug for um to in drug rehab programs ephedrine tyramine um and also dma is a substance that has been added as energy supplements in some of the gym um uh, supplement groups so that that can give a false positive as well um and um also pseudoephedrine ephedrine i mentioned before and they can give a false positive as well um the uh, the we discussed dexamphetamine before so we get called sometimes uh this patient says that they've got a false uh, they've got a positive in amphetamine screen and they claim that they've been taking dexamphetamine so if a um as immunoassays is positive and we do a confirmation with mass spect most mass specs are geared to actually recognize that amphetamine and not the dexamphetamine yeah. um so dexamphetamine uh, dextrorotated version we can test for it um if we have a dexamphetamine standard and we set up the assay for it and say yes this is ex- exactly dexamphetamine um and ritalin which is um methylphenidate some people say oh, i've taken ritalin so i've got a false positive for amphetamine no ritalin would not give a positive result with amphetamine assays so um there are things that people will say but um we i mean there are assays to check for this and say yes it's exactly methylphenidate it's not amphetamine So the best thing will be to call us if someone's actually saying because it's going to be hard to remember that even for myself to remember yes. all the drugs that that yes, that's that's, exactly uh, that, right. that effect. So give us yes. a call but uh one of the things that we test we test creatinine in yes. urine. Yes. Uh and this is for dilution because yes. dilution is a common technique. We also yes. know that uh patients sometimes when they go into the bathroom if it's not supervised we have toilet water that yes. sort of some go in so we talk about adulterants yes. in there so yes. talk about people mixing it with uh bleach, uh, bleach and and all types yes. of things to try and interfere with the assay which doesn't work but we do test for adulterants yes. but yes. what happens when we get a really dilute like a, yes. a really dilute, dilute sample what do we do So if we get a, a very dilute sample um uh, first of all if these are collected as medical samples they are not supervised so medical collections um someone comes in and says oh, my daughter um you know thinks that her drink was spiked last night so that becomes a medical sample so they they're given a container they go and collect it 
But if someone comes in and says um, the uh, Department of Child Services for child custody purposes, they want me to collect a sample. So this ha- has to stand up in court as evidence. So in that situation, we have to follow the AS4308 standard and that explains how a sample is collected. So it has to be supervised. So they can't bring somebody else's urine in mm. their bag and tip it into the container and say, Here's, this is my urine. Um, some people bring a false bladder and they pretend to be um, uh, urinating themselves, but they're actually using the false bladder like a balloon and then squeezing out somebody else's urine or um, water. I have, um, I have lived a sheltered life. You have. There's, a, there's a whole website on being yes. able to purchase fake penises. Yes, and uh, they do they say if you're buying a fake penis, make sure it matches your skin colour yeah, because you right. some people buy a fake penis that's so, different from <laughs> So uh, and yes, yeah, so this is a it's a whole different level when you start to go into it. So and uh, then you can buy clean urine online as well. So if you are um, asked to come and do a drug test, you can order some clean urine, and they guarantee that there's nothing in this urine, and it actually is urine. So the thing is that um, if they are observed um, when they're collected, and as soon as it's collected, um, the uh, next step is to check the temperature of that sample. So it has to be close to body temperature so you know ah. that it's their own uh, urine. And then if there is a toilet there, usually the water in the flush tank is coloured. So if they added it, it'll give us a blue or a purple colour. So we know that they can't do that. And then once it comes to the lab, and then once it's collected, it has to be sealed and the collector and the observer and the donor both initial the, the, the seal. So then it goes onto a chain of custody. So they sign the chain of custody um, piece of paper and then it's signed by the couriers and it, when it comes to the lab, we sign it to say, yes, we've received it. So the chain of custody has to be maintained. So once it comes to the lab, we um, check for creatinine. So the creatinine will tell us, yes, it is urine, and then it has to be above a certain amount. Mm -hmm. If it's below that, then we would put a comment. We would still run the assays. So if it's negative, then there is a question. Then we put a comment saying the sample was dilute. Um, If it's positive, then, you know, it's positive, and then we can do a confirmation. Mm -hmm. So so the the point is that um, if the chain of custody is broken, um, uh, it won't stand up in court. So you have dual specimens. It's a AS forty three oh eight. So we we have dual specimens. One's tested, one's sealed, put away. When it's medical, though, yes. we just actually it's just a urine sample that yes. comes, and we you don't have that mm-hmm. yes. checking procedure. That's right. So the the AS forty three oh eight is to stand up in a court of law that this is a valid result, yes. Yes. whereas a drug one for a medical won't. Um, But then can I ask, when is it appropriate for a doctor to order via, I mean, how do they order 40, you know, with that stand? Yes, so um, this has been uh, discussed because we have to have specific collection centres for this and someone willing to go and observe the person um, being collected collected, and it has to be a a toilet suitable with the coloured water or whatever. So... Um, ClinPath currently, well, we've discussed this, we don't currently have them, um, the 4308 standard collection centres, because 
um, national accreditation will have to come and make sure that it's all accredited. So they'll have to visit and give us accreditation to do that. Um, so uh, the same uh, works for oral fluids. So the, uh, it's, I think it's 4607 standard for oral fluids. It's exactly the same. So observed collection, um, chain of custody, sealed, tamper-proof um, sample containers. So currently we don't have it. Um, there are other pathology services that may provide it, but there are some situations where you will have to insist that that's how it's done, um, particularly for um, you know anything that concerns legal side mm. of things. It would be more costly because it would take a while for me to produce the sample if someone's standing right next to me. That's all I'm saying. Yes, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. No, no. Uh, there's yes. there's lots of also. Mm. Uh, delaying techniques because if you yes. have to come back tomorrow that might work in your favor for an yes. extra day so again you're dealing with the legal system that yeah. is uh different to the medical system mm. but uh th there is just one last question i want to ask and i get it every once in a while uh and this is new synthetic drugs that come out yes. so you get a rave that's coming that's on right. a new drug that comes out of some yes. area can we test for that yes so uh, currently, there are seven labs in Australia that can test for synthetic, synthetic cannabinoids. Now, there's Chronic, uh, which is the first sort of one that um, widely used. Um, so they uh, um, very quickly got an assay going for it. Um, I think it's JW, um, some number. So they gave a number to this structure. And um, they put together a standard, like applying for a standard so they can do it in the standardised format like we do with the drugs of abuse screening. Um, however, very quickly, then the synthetic drug manufacturers change the drug structure. So it's forever changing. And there's about over 800 synthetic cannabinoids uh, currently in the market. So it is very difficult to keep up with them. So these seven labs can measure five or seven, uh, six different structures, but not all. So there's some that we miss all the time. And they do it very cleverly because there's some synthetic cannabinoids that are produced in a um, uh, volatile format and they spray it onto dried uh, parsley, for example. Um, and then it's very hard. Um, we don't know what's, you know, where, which substance it is. And it's, huh. It's all very difficult. So that's, um, yeah, that's been a very contentious problem. It's, yeah. it's always so, going to so be. So unless we have a standard for it, we're not able to test for it. And so that's the yes. thing. So all these new drugs yes. that come on the market. We have to get hold we, of some of it yeah, and then we produce a, so standard, almost, a pure yeah. stand, a, a form, form of it and then um, set up the essay. And my last question is, uh, as I'm about to become an employer and have my first staff member join me, if I wanted to set up screening, Yes. What's involved for an employer? Yeah, so there's um, a lot of different um, uh, uh, work site drug testing um, is available. So in uh, particularly mining uh, where you have to test them just before they go into work in uh, at the start of a shift. So there are point of care testing that's like a test strip. So mm -hmm. you can dip the test strip into the urine and it'll tell what it's positive for. Right. Um, they are um, not as sensitive as the... Um, assess we use in the lab, but they're good for quick screens. Okay. Um, then oral fluid testing has been now promoted in workplaces. It's all standardised and accepted because it's a very easy 
sample to collect. You don't need a toilet and you can observe someone collecting it. Um, so they're also available in that sort of point of care testing. Um, but pre-employment testing where you want to test someone before they actually sign up and come um, start their work, then we um, you can send it to the lab. So that um, if, if it is pre-employment testing and you think that if this um, sample becomes positive and that would be a cause for the person to lose their employment, then it becomes a legal sample. So it has to be collected in right. the um, correct manner. So it seems to me like me and my employee, it's going to be like a team bonding moment. Yes, yes. Isn't it? Terry? Yes. I might th double think about that. <laughs> Dr. Davika Thomas, thank you as always for joining us. I've certainly learned a lot, and you've just added some extra things to my Christmas list to oh, buy nice. for people. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thank, right. you. Thanks, Thank you. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references, and learning objectives, when applicable, can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au. And you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there. And we'd love to have you along.